All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Dr. Leah Katz, PhD. She's a clinical psychologist practicing in Portland, Oregon. She's originally from New York, where she completed her doctorate training at Ferrokov Graduate School of Psychology. While living in New York, she worked at a community clinic where she led several groups, treated individuals and couples in therapy, and taught at Stern College for Women. She currently works in a group practice where she specializes in working with teenagers and women with a focus on treating anxiety and depression, amongst other things. She utilizes a hybrid of cognitive, behavioral, ACT, and mindfulness techniques in her therapy work. She is passionate about girls' and women's mental health and helping women navigate challenges to live deeply connected and fulfilled lives. She writes for Psychology Today and recently published her first book, her first excellent book, Gatsy Mindfulness Practices for Everyday Bravery. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Leah Katz, that's at Dr. Full Stop Leah Katz. Twitter, her handle is at Dr. Leah Katz, all one word. And her website is drleahkatz.com. That's all one word as well. Where she shares her mental health related tips and insights. Although her clinical work is based mainly for women and girls, her fantastic mental health hacks, mindfulness tips, insights on emotions, etc., can be used by all and will help all men listening, no matter how you are right now. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Now, you're an absolute sensation on Instagram. I've loved your articles on psychology today. You know, you're changing lives, helping so many people. But for people who maybe don't recognize the name, could you give a quick introduction? Sure. And thank you for that really lovely intro. <laughs> that was nice. To, uh, nice. So I'm Dr. Leah Katz. I'm a clinical psychologist based in Portland, Oregon in the US. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also more recently an author. I just published my first book a few months ago called Gutsy Mindfulness Practices for Everyday Bravery. So I work in a clinical practice in Portland and I treat clients mostly with anxiety and depression. And I also I also write. And I'm sure my mother would agree you're probably the best guest for me just now because uh-huh. I'm currently going through, I'm on, I've tried antidepressants myself. I've tried CBT, NLP. So I kind of, I'm getting there, but mm-hmm. I'm at that moment of, do you switch to working like therapy? Do you try like mm-hmm. natural remedies? Do you do that? So, and I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of people in the same boat with COVID, but what yeah. was the initial point that drew you to psychology? Yeah. You know, I love this question because it's not often that I get to go back and reflect on what got me into this career, especially the longer that I do it. It's just sort of, you know, I do my day to day and focus on the future and what I'm doing. And I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on the past and what led me here. So, um, I mean, I think it was a, I think it was a mix of different variables, but certainly having people close to me going through mental health crises as I was growing up, um, impacted me a lot. And, you know, the sort of the the naivete of the young, you know, when I, I saw people suffering and I really wanted to use my life to help alleviate some of that suffering in the ways that I could as an individual person are what drew me to psychology in the first place. And then um, I, it was interacting with different professors and mentors who were psychologists and practiced in different kinds of ways that I think really solidified it for me. Because when I initially started feeling down and, the, you know, in the blues, mm-hmm. I think is probably what they used to call it. Mm-hmm. I start people would just say, I'll pull yourself together, man up, mm-hmm. toughen up. And as mm-hmm. over the last 20 years, things have really become a lot more kind of the spotlight's been shone onto mental health and we've got a greater mm-hmm. understanding. What's your opinion on like the current modalities, like the healing modalities? 
we seem to kind of just want to give antidepressants initially. You were an advocate mm-hmm. for going to therapy first. Mm-hmm. What do you think of it the way it's been in the last 20 years or so? Yeah, I mean, I as a therapist and someone who practices therapy a lot and who has been in my own therapy, you know, for many years, I started going to therapy when I was in my late teens um, and have gone on and off over the years. I'm a huge advocate of therapy because I've experienced the benefits of it in my own life and I also witness it in my clients. So um, I, I certainly am a big believer. I know that, you know, this is always a tricky thing to discuss because it is so subjective and everybody has unique circumstances in terms of what's available to them and what they have access to. So, you know, so I can't say hard and fast rule for everyone, but I believe very, very much in therapy and and doing things that we can do to help ourselves beyond medication. And medication is an absolutely great choice for, you know, people who are appropriate for it too, and it can really help alleviate um, symptoms. And that said, you know, like a lot of times what I tell clients is sometimes when we go on medication and antidepressant, it helps open up some brain space to then be able to really participate in the therapy work or in our own self-growth, whether it's reading material and practicing skills. And, um, you know, and that's what research supports too, that it's usually the combination of medication and therapy that yields the best results. And do you think that's a problem a lot of guys have is the, the, you know, we're told to be the man, be the strong, silent type. And, you know, you would go to hospital with a broken leg. So why wouldn't you go with a brain injury or a mental health or something you struggle with and how do we get through that stigma especially yeah. with young people that it's okay not yeah. to be okay yeah yeah and you know i have so much hope for the next generation because i work with a lot of teenagers and i think that something shifting in the in the mental health um landscape for younger people and teens and that they're more open and talking about being in therapy and their mental health struggles and taking medication. That's what I observe, <laughs> at least in the corner of the world that, I'm, that, that I am in. And I think that's wonderful. And I think places like social media are helpful in cultivating that awareness and that openness. That's one of the reasons why I got on Instagram in the first place is I felt like it was an opportunity to hopefully create some impact and influence and mental help people access mental health tips and ideas and wellness that they might not otherwise mm-hmm. have access to and also destigmatize it because when we talk about it and like I said you know in the beginning even me saying as a therapist I've been in my own therapy was a, was hard for me to say in the beginning you know when I first started writing and I first started talking because I was dealing with my own stigma around it from where I came from and how therapy was viewed um, so I think the more that we all talk about our stories, and we recognize that there's so much overlap and so many of us are struggling with the same things and finding benefit in the same things like antidepressants. I'm always, I really admire people who openly say, you know, yeah, I'm taking an SSRI or I'm taking, I, I just think it's like such a brave, strong and healthy modeling thing to do because then, you know, it lets other people come out of the woodwork and say, oh yeah, me too. Or what's that like for you? So I think just talking about it openly, honestly, suspending judgment is so powerful. Because when I first started, I was like, no, can't tell anybody. It's a deep, dark mm-hmm. secret. you got to hide it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm mm-hmm. kind of saying to people, I mean, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, oh, you tried NLP, read CA, cognitive behavior therapy. And people are uh-huh. kind of going, oh, right, is that not normal to think like that or to act that way? And uh-huh. I think we're kind of learning as we go, like, when somebody taught me that I wasn't my thoughts, that blew uh-huh. me away. Because yeah. I always assumed what came in was natural. Totally. Why does your brain create that? And how do we realize... It's not an action prompt. It's just a suggestion that our brain's using like the bias of the situation. Yeah. You know, I, so interesting because maybe some of it's emotional maturity too, but I'm thinking about my own experiences as a younger person and how I put so much stock in my thoughts. You know, like if I had a problem or I needed to make a decision, I would take my journal and I'd go to a quiet place and I'd make pros and cons lists over and over and over again. (laughs) They never never led me to an answer. It was just driving, I was driving myself bonkers, you know, it was just literally, yeah, I don't know. The rumination and it's just getting Uh stuck in in the thinking. And I remember too, when I had that shift and it's really when I started practicing more mindfulness where I realized, oh my gosh, like there's so much wisdom that, that lives underneath my thoughts, like in my body. Um, and that's, I, that, you know, I write about that in my book too, getting back in touch with that inner wisdom and how our body gives us so much information about where we're at and what we need to do. And we just, we're just trained out of, out of paying attention out to that and paying, putting much more stock in our thoughts than we should, or we need to. So I, I think, you know, you asked, well, how do we, how do we get out of that? I think different practices work for different people, but mindfulness, practicing mindfulness, practicing meditation for me was a huge pivotal shift. 
I mean, is that something you think everybody should be doing, or is there particular issues that you see that pe- that people come to you with? You know, because a lot of people kind of go in, oh no, um, I've got to, this. This is my problem. I've got to deal with it. But mm-hmm. do you see the same kind of problems that people have lost connections? And you know, mm-hmm. is there similarities with what people come to see you about? Yeah, I work with a lot of people who have anxiety and depression. And so there is a lot of overlap at this point, you know, with with uh, specific clients that I work with. And in terms of one size fitting all, you know, that's something that as a therapist and, you know, getting older in my own life, you know, like, I don't think we can ever say that. I don't think this is the one Definitely. answer for everyone. And there's certainly research that supports that it can be counterindicated for some people. And, you know, so I think that, I don't, you know, and I think that when we have this idea of like, oh, this works for everyone, why isn't it working for me? Then that can lead us down a whole other rabbit hole, you know, of shame and self-deprecation. Why, why isn't this good for me? So I can't, you know, I think that there are some people that it works for, like myself, it was really huge and I write a lot about it because of that. And I think for some people it might not be the answer, but there's other ways of accessing the the ability to be intentional and present in our life than a formal mindfulness practice. I mean, do you see kind of the standard um, symptoms? Because for me, it's I notice things like my flat used to get dirty or I would stop going social. Um, I mm-hmm. would stop doing certain things. And it was a s- slow progression. And then suddenly it hit you and you were like, before you knew it, you're in the throes and the end of the world. And, you know, do you see kind of red flags that people can watch out for? Is there a way we can kind of suggest to people what seasonal affliction disorder what is maybe getting towards clinical and needs like medical Mm -hmm. intervention is it a way to kind of spot Mm -hmm. potential problems yeah um for sure and i think that's a multi-layered answer you know and i think (laughs) that (laughs) it's a big it's a big question with a big answer and I think developing self-awareness is our best bet in in identifying things earlier. So learning to check in with ourselves, you know, like the three-way, I always like this three-way triangle of check-in where we ask ourselves, how are my thoughts? What am I thinking? What's going on in my brain? How am I, fe- how am I feeling? What emotions am I having? And how's my body feeling? So it's a three-way check-in and it leads to really great self-awareness. Like, what am I thinking? How am I feeling? And how's my body doing? And like I was saying before, so often we're so busy that we just don't catch the small clues until it becomes so big and so loud that we just can't ignore it anymore, you know, like physical pain in our body. So many times, you know, I hear from people like, even myself, I was having back pain and I'm busy and I'm just doing all these different things. And, you know, until it gets really, really difficult, that's when I, you know, that's when I paid attention to it this time. And I hear that from a lot of people. So if we create intentional check-ins with ourselves to build self-awareness, then we have the information of of okay now what now what can I do with what I've just found yeah yeah my mind my mind yeah I'm having all these really hard thoughts okay well now what am I going to do about that or my body is just really really achy and sore what can I do about that so I think that the more that we dig a little deeper and build up our own self awareness hopefully the earlier we can start to catch things or and even identify like when I'm headed down that path you know so for people it sounds mm-hmm. like you're describing like with depression or with you know that there's there are signs you know for people who have cyclical depression there's signs that we're headed there and we get in touch with our own signs whatever they are and then we learn to intervene earlier on and it's easier to intervene and treat when we're before we're like deep down in the ditch and do you think like a, a problem is that there people have such strong coping mechanisms that, you know, they've actually built, um, you know, it's like the dog that gets the sore leg and it carries it up and it gets seized into that position. Are we doing that with our mental health? We've kind of built in coping strategies that maybe we're not even aware of uh, how unhealthy they are. And, you know, we're thinking, no, we're fine. Don't be silly where anybody totally. from outside can see it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I think that that's, you know, that's always a big part of doing our own work and our own healing and growth is learning adaptive coping strategies. So how can I deal with what's coming up for me in a way that's healthy and that works for me and leads me towards greater fulfillment and meaning and Mm. gaining an awareness of the maladaptive coping strategies that we might be employing, you know? So maladaptive is this idea of, well, what am I doing to cope with a symptom? But in the end, I'm just shooting myself in the foot because this is leading me down a darker path that's just reinforcing the anxiety or, you know, so whether it's people who turn towards drinking or even drinking, you know, drinking coffee, too much coffee perpetually because we're so tired, you know, well, Mm. you know, well, we've got to get to the root of that. Yeah. So how do we break that initial thing of it's okay to be 
you know, to ask for help. But also it's, you know, we don't need to be on the grind 24-7. It's okay to rest. It's okay to step back. And, you know, you you were saying like anxiety in our life is a way of the mm-hmm. brain keeping itself safe. But mm-hmm. is that the brain we're still getting the cavemen prompts that, oh, there mm-hmm. could be a jaguar about to chase you. Oh, we need to be mm-hmm. fight or flight. Whereas mm-hmm. nowadays in our modern life, things are different, but we've still got the that neurological prehistoric threats, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, and I, I'm always so careful, you know, how I talk about this on social media and in my therapy work, but anxiety is, it's a, it's a, it's a physical response that isn't always bad, you know? So what you were just referencing, you know, that how it, it has a very strong adaptive function and where it, it comes from, you know, it's really our, our fight or flight danger response. Mm-hmm. It's our brain alerting us that there is something unsafe in the environment and we've got to do something about it. And when there is a real threat in the environment and we do something about it, then well, great. Like we just saved our lives potentially, you know, like in the caveman, you know, scenario. And what happens now with the more clinical anxiety is our brain is going into like what's called false alarm mode, where our the part of our brain that alerts us to anxiety is saying, alert, alert, there's anxiety, there's danger, but there is no, there is no danger. But then we but we still go into that anxiety response and we still feel really threatened and afraid. And that can really limit our lives and make it smaller and smaller if let's say um, the anxiety is coming up about driving a car or flying on an airplane or or engaging in social situations, you know. So that's a false alarm because there's no actual real threat, at least not in the way that our anxiety is telling or our brain is telling us that there is. Because when I used to just go on autopilot, you know, I'd be sitting there and I'd be having a conversation with somebody and in my head I'm thinking, oh, I've had a breakup or, you know, it was the end of the world. And I could actually almost feel like I was on autopilot while I was ruminating and obtrusive Mm -hmm. thoughts and all these sort of things. Mm -hmm. Then people started suggesting box breathing. You know, people suggested the, mm-hmm. you know, you use like the, you make it a movie in your head, but you take the color mm-hmm. out, you make it smaller, mm-hmm. you give it mm-hmm. cartoon voices. Mm-hmm. Are there psychological tools that you would suggest if we were to make like a psychological toolbox for people? And mm-hmm. what self care routines, what kind of methods would you give people as mm-hmm. a sort of, these will help no matter what the situation? I mean, gosh, that's a br- another broad, broad question. I think that <laughs> I, I give I a lot of them. I know, no, they're they're so good, and I hope that this really helps a broad range of people who are listening. And mm. with the work that I do, I get really specific because I work, you know, indiv- individually, one on one. So this is what this specific this form of anxiety, because anxiety is a big umbrella word for lots of different ways that it can manifest. So there's lots of different tools. But that said, I mean, I think you just listed a lot of really helpful tools. So, you know, there's working with our thoughts. So what if we're noticing that we're feeling anxious um, or upset, you know, saying, hold on a second, like, what was I just thinking that's making me feel this way and getting in touch with the thoughts and asking ourselves, is that true? You know, or is there another way of thinking about this? Or is there a pattern to this thinking, you know, so that I can identify it. And then just by identifying the patterns of our thinkings, we can disengage from them because we recognize, oh, this is like my brain doing that thing again. So. Um, I think that that no matter what we're talking about, you know, even if it's not clinical things necessarily, getting in touch with our thinking is a phenomenal tool because our brains are so super, super busy, constantly, constantly producing millions and billions of thoughts. There's going to be some wonky ones, <laughs> you know, so like when we catch them and we're like, oh, that's that's a wonky one. And actually, that's a wonky one that's related to those other ones that like I've just had, you know, and they keep on coming up. So, you know, getting familiar with our thought patterns can be so helpful. But you mentioned like a lot of things just now, you know, self-care also is a great way just to, you know, so there's treating things, treating stuff when they come up, treating anxiety when it comes up, but there's also prevention. So what can we do to put our best foot forward hmm. so that we could hopefully keep ourselves healthy and well. And that's where like the idea of self-care comes from. And self-care, people have this idea about self-care that it's just like pampering stuff. If I have time to do, then I'll do it. But really, like I think a good way of thinking about self-care is the things that we can do to alleviate our stress, whatever that might be. Hmm. I mean, do you find that like people should just organize their lives with like you know get a routine look for some downtime you know like removing technology you know these are the kind of standard things people say but you know the, the news is p- predominantly negative um, yeah but then you'll say to people like they'll say i'm stressed to the eyeballs and you'll say when was the last time you went for a 10 minute walk outside in nature yeah totally yeah was- 
silly, just silly little things like that that made such a difference that, to my life. Yeah, um, yeah. So when we are um, doing these things, I mean, I suffer from like some pretty horrible obtrusive thoughts. And as I'm walking, people used to say, um, I read somewhere, was it CBT, where look up to the horizon because you can't mm-hmm. access the, the past because your eyes have got to look down for that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all these like amazing things like, you know, if you're thinking this, reframe it as a, as a take the threat and reframe it into an opportunity and all these and I was like that's great but how do you avoid going into the automatic response you know yeah see that see your ex-girlfriend and oh um she's abandoned me I'm worthless how do you actually ground yourself to start mm-hmm. the initial defense of that yeah yeah and see I think that this is a misconception that it's not about avoiding it. It's about accepting it. And when we mm. move from avoidance to acceptance, that's when we find mo- like our power because we can't avoid like what I was just saying before. Our brains are so busy. Our brain will come up with whatever it wants, whatever thoughts it wants to come up with, whether it's helpful or okay. unhelpful, you know, but it's how we relate to those thoughts that makes all the difference. So it's not, you know, so, okay, now I bumped into my ex and I'm having all these thoughts and, oh, okay. So it's bringing an awareness to the thoughts that are coming up. Oh, okay. Here are those thoughts. And oh, those are, these are the thoughts that come up for me when I'm in situations where I feel rejected or I feel hurt. Let me create some distance between myself and my thinking. And like, I can like put it in the palm of my hand, these thoughts I'm having and take a look at them and, and question, and question them. Oh, okay. Like, you know, what, where, where do you come from? And are you helpful or are you unhelpful? If you're unhelpful, maybe I can learn to let those thoughts go. Just sort of like, you know, I like analogies a lot. So like the clouds in the sky, I can imagine those unhelpful thoughts just floating me by or like blowing bubbles and the bubble drifts away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And do you think it we it's good to name the emotion to say, I am feeling this, it's not, it doesn't mean it's part of my story. It doesn't define me. It just means at this moment, it's like people say, I had a terrible day. And, yeah. you know, it's like, did you? Or was it 20 yeah. minutes when it was crap? Right, exactly. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it too, naming our feeling because it, it, that creates the distance, you know? So when we give it a name and we give it a label, all of a sudden it's this entity, it's this thing, this visitor that's visiting me. And now I mm-hmm. can... Now I recognize that it's not me and I can choose what to do with it. You know, like, okay, yeah, sure. Come, come, come on, buddy. Like, come take a seat next to me. This is what I'm going to do. You can, you know, whatever feeling is here for me, the anxiety or the hurt, you can come take a seat, but you're not going to tell me what to do. So naming the feeling is a very good way of de-identifying with it, which is ironic, you know, because I think a lot of people think, oh, if I name the feeling or I take a look at my feelings, then I'm, I'm going to get sucked in, you know, it's sort of one of these like, you know, fear-based, especially if it's like a really intense feeling, but actually the opposite happens. So when we, we shift our focus and we turn and we look at the feeling and we say, oh, okay, this is here for me now. It's like putting a sticky note on it, you know, like the sticky, oh, anger. Okay. Now I, okay. Anger's here. I, I'm okay with that. I'm human. Of course, I'm going to feel angry sometimes. I'm going to have that experience sometimes. Yeah. So how, I mean, you talk about being brave and, you know, taking that initial step and how do we start identifying the the behavioral patterns that we're doing because we're people pleasing or we're perfectionist or we're the, like I had big imposter syndrome when I started the podcast, even now mm-hmm. 150 odd, um, I mean, it's sweltering down just now and I feel all clammy, you know, I'm just kind of like, oh, she's uh-huh. a star. I adore her social media and I'm asking stupid questions, you know. I've done 150 of these, but my brain still feels like a beginner, like I'm going to be found out. How do we start identifying habits that are causing these things that we can work on in our everyday lives? Is there ways to identify it? Well, I think, I don't know if this answers it right head on, but the first thing that's coming to my mind as you ask the question is learning to practice self-compassion for these very human experiences, you know, so, and and just even labeling it that way is, oh, this is a human experience is so compassionate in and of itself, right? So saying like, oh, before this interview or before I was getting so anxious and if we can just meet that experience and say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. It's okay. It makes sense that I would feel anxious sometimes I'm human and, and, you know, that, that just, that that's okay. This feeling is totally okay for me. It doesn't mean anything more than the fact that this experience is here for me now. You know, I don't have to make more of it than I need to. And, and I'm okay feeling that, you know? So I think it's like the self-compassion to name it, to recognize that it's something that we all experience, even imposter syndrome. I mean, if you look at the studies and the research on that, so many people could identify with that feeling. So if we're able to meet it and just say, 
okay, this is here for me now. And I don't even need to like get so into it. Like, why is this here? It's more just like just noting it, being okay with it. You know, we can, we can offer some reassurance to ourselves, like it'll pass or kind of, it's a bummer that I feel this way, but it's, I can still do what I need to do with the feeling. You know, my job is not to like only do the things I want to do if I'm feeling amazing, you know? Because that's a big thing I found was I wasn't angry. I wasn't upset. I wasn't obsessed. I was just feeling that emotion. And to, like you're saying, to stop and actually identify it and watch it just pass. And yeah. once you realize that you're not your brain, you're not the thoughts, you're the person observing the thoughts. It's just right. like a program throwing stuff out. Right. So how, but what happens if we've made mistakes in the past? I've had guys mm-hmm. write to me because after the Me Too movement, they were worried mm-hmm. that they had maybe offended or took advantage of a girl or they had done mm-hmm. something stupid. You know, maybe mm-hmm. not even stuff that was real, but mm-hmm. they had perceived these things. Or people, um, I spoke to David Hayes, who mm-hmm. works in um, penal sort of justice reform. Mm-hmm. And he was mm-hmm. saying he works with prisoners who are told, you're, you're scum. You know, you're always going to be a number. You're never going to change. Oh. You're never going to be. Yeah. And he's saying that they then identify as criminals, so what's the point of trying? They'll just go right. back in and out. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. How yeah. do we move on from a mistake or reset, recalibrate, and refocus? Yeah, yeah. I, I think like just sort of building off of what we were saying be- just before about the self-compassion piece. Mm-hmm. We're all going to make mistakes. And sometimes like, you know, the mistakes are to varying degrees of infraction, you know, on whatever we've done, but we're all going to make mistakes and meeting ourselves with self-compassion is I think a step towards our own healing and making change, right? So if I can say, oh, I just, you know, talked to that person that way and, or I yelled at my spouse or, you know, that, that doesn't feel great. If we go down the rabbit hole of like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm such a bad person. We're not, we're, we're just digging ourselves deeper and we're not actually Hmm. moving towards making change. I mean, Steve Cam, who runs Nerd Fitness, he has this amazing article about Berserker, you know, that kind of Viking warrior rage. And he said, you just need that 20 seconds of rage to do the confidence. And Mm. he he applies it that, you know, if you're nervous, pretend you're a Mm -hmm. berserker and get that 20 seconds of rage Mm -hmm. and give the confidence Mm -hmm. to yourself. Mm -hmm. If we do find that in ourselves, how do we find that confidence to come and speak to a therapist and say, I am struggling? or speak to a doctor, or, you know, like a, a, a mental health charity. How do mm-hmm. we how do we admit to it, but how do we give you the, the areas, the symptoms, the explanation that you need to start helping us? How do we work best with a therapist in that sense? You mean how do we reach out? Like how, what, how can we get over fears that we have of reaching out? Yeah, I mean, is there a way that, like say if somebody just now goes, I, I don't know how to, I could tell somebody that I am having thoughts about this or Uh, I'm depressed. How can we talk to a therapist and actually get the best advice? How can we be the the best style patient for you to help? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the first step is just taking a deep breath and being brave, you know, and I brave. And so just saying like, this is where do I want to go in my life? And I think part of it, part of it, and part of what helped me shift my own life is the recognition that life is short, you know, so we don't have Hmm a whole lot of time to dilly dally, you know, not to, not to be like morose, but it's just a reality. And, um, how do I want to live my life? And if there's this recognition that like, whatever it is that I'm dealing with is infringing in my life, it's taking a deep breath and being brave. And then it's being honest and authentic, you know, and that was what, where I was going to go before too, like with the self-compassion piece. So an interesting piece of self-compassion is being really, really like allowing yourself to be really honest with what you're experiencing with yourself. So taking like just looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, gosh, I'm, I'm really struggling with rage at home. I'm, I'm yelling a lot at my kids or, um, and not in this judging way, but in this very honest, real way, this is what's, ha- and, and now I can go seek help and I can be honest with the person that I'm seeking help with knowing, and you know, this is intuitive, but sometimes it's just helpful to hear it from a therapist that this is speaking to a therapist. This is what we do. This is there, you know, if you're working with the right therapist, you won't feel judged. You won't feel, you know, like, and it's all confidential, of course. And, you know, and if you do feel judged or you are worried about disclosing certain information, 
that's a piece of authenticity too. saying that say like, this is hard for me to speak about, or I'm worried that you're judging me. And that can be such rich information in a therapy session, you know, like to explore that. Because mm-hmm. that's what I love about your social media is that every post has a kind of, it's just, you start reading it and go, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's a good thought. And then you start applying it to your life and going, whoa. And then you could, it's like the, it's like the layers of the onion. You can start peeling back and going, oh, maybe that's what that emotion's from. Maybe that's why I do that because of that. And it's very well done. Like I love your social media and it's a great place for people to start who are maybe afraid of going and speaking to a therapist. Mm-hmm. But I love how you're a fan of like self-compassion and mm-hmm. um I read somewhere that somebody said, treat yourself like t- it was somebody you loved, like you wouldn't do yeah. it to a partner. Right. So why would you speak to yourself like that? How right. do we regulate how we speak to ourselves? Yeah. I mean, I think that I actually just had a post on that, like probably this week or recently that, you know, that idea, if we have trouble accessing self-compassion, mm. not meeting, not meeting that with judgment, it's just note. Oh no. Okay. The self-compassion is hard for me. Maybe if I'm in therapy, I can get curious with my therapist about why that this is hard, where that comes from, why it's hard for me to be compassionate, but that's a very good concrete strategy. Well, if I have a hard time with self-compassion, let me just access compassion for someone else. How would I relate to this? If someone, if my my spouse or my child or a good friend came to me and told me the same things that I'm going through that I'm telling myself, how would what would I tell them? You know, what would I tell them? And then we just direct it towards ourselves. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and level up. Because I, I can remember sitting there and people would be saying things like you know about themselves and be like what you know you're nothing like that oh you're great at that and they'd be like mm-hmm. no I'm, t- I'm hopeless and crap and i would flip it and see myself talking to me like oh you're a loser mm-hmm. or you know and mm-hmm. we you would never let somebody speak to you like that and keep right. that friendship so why do we do it to ourselves why do we yeah. beat ourselves because it becomes a mental prison you can't escape from yeah it's such a double standard isn't it and it's like this double standard that so many people can relate to that we have different standards for how other people we would talk to other people or how we'd even let other people talk to us and then how we talk to ourselves and I think that answer usually goes to our childhood you know I talk a lot about that too in my in my book and my writings but you know we learn about who we are and how the world views us from our childhood so our caregivers our parents our friends in school our teachers when we're young, we're, we're, you know, we're like developing this blueprint for like who we are and what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are. And we're getting all this information from our environment. So if we were getting information or feedback about ourselves that we weren't good enough, or we had parents who were super critical. And so we felt like we could never be enough or do enough, or we had to do things to earn their love or, you know, things like that. Then we develop these scripts as kids that unless we do work on them as adults are, are very limiting and are pretty critical. Will these scripts, will they kind of just keep coming back as the same kind of problems? Will we see the same, you know, they always say you date the same kind of person until you learn the lesson from that. Will we always, will you know, will these continue until we deal with them? Is mindfulness the best approach at this point? I think that we're pretty consistent, which is actually a good thing. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be dealing with like 15 different scripts, you know, like, oh no, now it's this one. Now, So usually we're pretty consistent. The stuff that we experience as childhood turns into this inner dialogue that we live with until we decide not to live with it anymore by looking at it and working with, working through it in a very compassionate way. So mindfulness is a great, is a great starting point just, and that's what, that's what it was for me. And I witnessed that in clients that I work with just in getting that awareness. Oh my gosh, how am I actually talking to myself? I I write about this in my book, having this experience on a mindfulness Mm -hmm. retreat during a silent portion of that retreat where I, for the, and this was in my twenties. Yeah. My twenties when I went on my first retreat and, you know, so living all that time. And then I remember so clearly that moment where like, oh my gosh, I'm so harsh with myself. And it took a few silent days for me to really 
realize how constant that inner chatter was and how negative it was. Um, so mindfulness can be a great starting point to gain that awareness. And, and also the reason why I love mindfulness is because it's learning to be present for what's unfolding within us. And the second part of that is in a very compassionate, non-judging way, right? So it's not like, oh, now I'm negative about being negative. It's like, oh, wow, that's harsh. Oof, okay. You know, like it's in a more compassionate way. Because everybody says to journal, but I always find that as soon as you journal and you go, I'm like this, and then you go, okay, but it's because of this. And then uh-huh. you start saying, I'm like that because of that. I'm going to hold out against that person because they did that in my childhood. Uh-huh. So it's almost like you want to apportion blame. Is journaling good or are talking therapies better because we can at least get like methods and helpful, you know, like actions returned from you, like concrete action steps, rather than just going, blame your mother because she said that, blame your dad because they did that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I I think journaling is excellent and I think therapy is excellent too. And I oftentimes give journaling as a homework exercise for the people that I'm working with because I think it does just create the space for us to reflect and see what's going on in our minds and a way of getting Mm. it out of our bodies, you know, because if we're not processing it, it's going to live somewhere inside of us. So, and, and also just to highlight, I think that there is a very big difference between blame and accountability. You know, so blame is like, I'm angry and I'm just, I need to put this on someone else because I'm angry. And that's the stopping point. Accountability is, hey, it's like coming from a self-worth place. Like I have self-worth and I deserve to be treated in a certain way and I have standards. And so therefore I'm going to hold people accountable for their actions towards me now and towards their actions towards me when I was a child. And mm. and that is a very different dynamic. Because especially since I started finding your writing and your like your social media, I've started questioning things and going, is that who I am? No, it's not. And then I take each prompt sometimes and go, okay, let's think about this. And I've started trying to write it out, but I did find myself going, oh no, that's so-and-so's fault. Or I, that was that event. Mm-hmm. But then it's mm-hmm. like, what do you do with that? You know, how do you, mm-hmm. you know, are there certain prompts that you think we could start with? Or there's three prompts every guy listening um, could start going, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to analyze when I'm angry with these prompts, or I'm going to an- analyze when I'm depressed with these prompts. Is there mm-hmm. kind of ideas or prompts that you give to clients? I mean, I think identifying where it lives in your body is always a good one, you know. So where does this feeling live inside of me? You know, so because we're so used to saying, oh, I'm so angry or I'm so anxious, like asking the question, really, how do I know that I'm so angry? How do how do I know it? How does it live in my body? Because our body, that's how we know it because it's in our body somewhere. Oh, my chest is really tight and my, I'm tense and I my heart's pounding and now I know I'm angry, you know? So mm-hmm. um, I think that would be a great, you know, how does my body carry my feelings would be a good one. Um, when did this, if it's a pattern, when did this start? You know, just sort of exploring the origins. That's another good one. And how would you set somebody up? Like, you know, when you're working with a client, do you ask them to change their new, you know, their um, attitude towards food? Do you ask them, suggest them that they should take particular minerals or, you know, do you find like just a change in nutrition or a a change in philosophy towards food and supplementation can help people be healthier mentally as well as physically? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot written on how we eat and our gut health and how our gut health influences our mental health. It's not an area of my own specialty at this point, you know, something I'd like to learn and get more training in. So, um, you know, so I don't, I don't do, I don't, I don't offer specific, you know, ideas of supplements or minerals. It's not what I do, but definitely talking about like what we were saying before, the preventative, preventative self-care, preventative care is important. So you know, sort of another triangle, eating, sleeping, movement, you know, how are you eating? And are you eating enough calories? Are you eating food that fills you up and that that's nutritious and feels good to eat? Monitoring your sleep. Are you making sure that you're going to bed at around the same time at night and waking up at around the same time in the morning? And what's your, you know, bedtime routine and wind down routine and then movement, you know? So those are another three, three things that help us with wellness. Because I used to think, oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm mentally resilient and tough. And then, you know, when you start looking at the things you do as well, you know, it's like insomnia. Mm-hmm. And I can remember when I was on antidepressants last time, they said, okay, I said, I've got insomnia. They said, okay, we'll give you a pill for the insomnia. And then you think I'm taking a pill for a pill. And right, then another right. pill for, you know, how do we avoid that? Do you know, is yeah. it a case of 
incorporating short walks, um, like going to the gym, or is it what habits can we incorporate that help yeah. clients? Yeah, I mean, movement's huge. You know, movement and getting outside are so important for our mental health. You know, there are studies that show just sitting outside for 20 minutes a day decreases anxiety and depression, you know? So if you add movement to that, well, then that's even like, that's too, you know, that you get even greater benefit because now you're Mm -hmm. moving, which is also really great for processing and moving and helping us with sleep. And you mentioned before, like the CBT. So there's CBT for insomnia specifically. So if that's something that somebody deals with, you can look up CBTI, CBT for insomnia. Um, And there are specific techniques that you can teach yourself to help if insomnia is an issue. Um, you know, things, you know, there's so many things that we can do that are intuitive too, like, you know, stopping caffeine early in the day and not, you know, screen time at night, limiting how much screen time we're getting and turning it off or taking a hot shower bath an hour before we go to bed is shown to like really help with our body temperature rising and then falling so that we get sleepy. I love how like there's, there's great people like you out there who, who can actually just say, Oh God, I want to rage. I want to do it. And you just go, well, actually that's because of this. Now ground yourself, take a, and I love the power that you talk about, the power of pausing, you know, Mm. just stopping and Mm -hmm. not actually, you know, I don't need to be on the grind. I don't need to be checking my emails at 11 PM because of my work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we actually start using the power of pausing? How do we stop, catch a breath and go, look, we, we, you know, we need to be better to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think it really does start with discipline, honestly. Like that's how I, that's how I do it. So like by that, I mean, if I go for a walk with my dog, I'm tempted to bring my phone with me, you know, cause like, you know, I like to have my phone. There's something about having that phone on us, but the discipline is no, I'm going, I need to clear my head and I need to just disconnect. And so I'm going to go for this walk without my phone, you know, so that takes discipline, you know, so it's sort of, I think it's creating an intention around what we're doing and why we're doing it and making sure that we are at least in the, you know, if this is a new journey, really, really like physically and manually taking those pauses for ourselves. Um, yeah, you know, it might just mean like making rules for, you know, no, I'm not going to call anybody, you know, in the car, like in the car time might be a good time to make a call because, but maybe that's a time that I need to decompress after a day of work. And so that's just going to be a rule for myself. I'm just not going to do that. So I can like just sit with myself. Because one of the things I read recently was how, I think it was something like 60 to 70% of men identified as not having a best friend or a close mm-hmm. friend that they could share mm-hmm. things with do mm-hmm. you think there is a loneliness epidemic that covid has really highlighted you know we just hid oh it behind gosh. fame and going and drinking and stuff now we're realizing yeah. where the priori- priorities should lie yeah yeah i do i mean i do think that there is a lot of loneliness and i think covid has ex- only exacerbated that to a huge great deal And, um, you know, we're social creatures and having friends and having people around us is so, so important. I mean, they've done like also like lots of studies about um, people naming people who would just come and come to them, like come and if they needed help, you know, so who, who do you have anybody you would call if you really, really needed help and who would show up for you? And I, I don't know what the exact number, but it was really small. Like most people couldn't even think of someone who would do that for them. And that's a very lonely place to be. And we can like talk about why, you know, I mean, COVID threw things off dramatically because people were isolated and lonely because of the pandemic. But even before that, you know, with technology and social media and like the sort of like this constant busyness that so many of us are subjugated to or, you know, feel like we need to do, it just gets us very stuck in our way of being and, and pretty alone. Because something I noticed a lot of people struggled with was suddenly with all the distractions taken away, mm-hmm. people were terrified of silence. They yeah. had to have something. They had to have the noise. They had to be doing something. How yep. do we stop feeding silence and letting, listening to our bodies again, listening to that voice in our head? Not the, not the one that bitches to us, but the one that actually mm-hmm. says, we can be more. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, you're happy, you're worthy, you're good enough. How do we reconnect with ourselves rather than what the Kardashians are doing or something silly like that? Yeah, yeah. I think that so two twofold, two sides of the same coin. And I get like, you know, it's probably a lot of what I'm saying is like similar with the questions that you're asking me. But the first piece is that self-awareness. So how is how Mm. I'm spending my time actually impacting me? So is watching reality TV making me feel good? Like it's just in a very non-judging way. Like how am I actually feeling when I turn the show off or after I scroll social media for 30 minutes or an hour or however long TikTok, you know, for however long? Am I feeling fulfilled? Am I feeling like this is making me feel meaning in my life? 
And maybe sometimes in it, maybe it's like, yeah, I really needed that downtime and that's okay, you know? But maybe sometimes like, no, like I really, I don't even know why I did that. I just re- saw my phone, I reached for it and an hour later, here I am and I feel pretty empty. So I think it's creating an awareness around how we're feeling when we're doing the things that we're doing in our lives and then giving ourselves permission to tweak how we're spending our time. So if we're noticing, yeah, I'm spending a lot of time on my phone or I'm or I, I'm signed up for this activity, but I actually dread it. Like I really don't like doing it. So giving ourselves permission to say, no, I'm not doing that anymore, or put limits on the phone and get engaged with the things that give us meaning, whether it's a hobby or it's taking out books from the library and reading about something that's interesting to you or spending time with there's somebody that you like that you want to develop a friendship with, inviting them out for coffee or something. Um, it's we really get a choice in how we spend our time. And so much of the time it's like that autopilot. Like, well, this is just my routine. Yeah. This is what I do. And we don't realize that there's a lot that we can do to like change that. Because you see that, you know, people go, oh, that's just the way I am. And you're like, well, no, yeah. you can, you can no. identify that and change that behavior. That's right. just something that's you cool. do, like you're right. saying, because of that. And um, how do we, like, you know, that moment when you're on social media and you start feeling jealous because, Mm-hmm. this person you're watching has just won a I don't know like a jiu-jitsu competition for me I do <laughs> I, I train jiu-jitsu um, cool. yeah. or you know somebody has done x and you wanted to do that and or the, mm-hmm. you know somebody's just got um, engaged how do we stop and go no I'm comparing myself is it just like you're saying the self-awareness or the mm-hmm. chest type name the emotion then mm-hmm. deal with it is is that yeah. simple I mean, I think that, um, I think it can be that simple for sure. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's really not complicated if we think about it. We're like, oh yeah, we all experience this. That people, you know, the comparisons and the jealousy that comes up from social media. So we can just disengage from it. You know, it doesn't, we can just say like, like just make this shift. Like, oh, I am not doing that to myself anymore. You know, whether that means getting off of certain social media apps that you just notice are making you feel bad about yourself. Just don't go like, you know, yeah, it can be that simple. Like just don't go on it. Delete the app from your phone. Um, only use it when you feel like there's intention behind it and you really want to use it. Also, I mean, and I know that this is all over the place on social media, but ironically that, you know, reminding ourselves that what you see on social media is just, is fake. So much of it's fake, you know? So yeah, you may be someone won the, yeah. the, how do you say it? The ninjutsu oh, competition? The jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu competition. <laughs> but you don't see like all the other, the stress and you just, you just don't see, you know, or all the work that went into them doing that, like all the tireless, you know, days and, you know, all hours they spent preparing for that. So, um, yeah. It's like, you know, why compare your whole life to somebody's, you know, controlled highlights, the, you know, the exactly. good part they're showing you. I mean, something totally. I did, I did love was gratitude. Mm-hmm. I have a prompt in my diary now that sends me an email every morning and says, what are three things you're proud, you know, grateful for? And you start going, oh, this is silly. But if you start going, okay, I'm grateful for working from home you know that mm-hmm. I don't need to drive in today and then you start adding mm-hmm. more and more each day and before you know it you go oh, yeah, I've got a lot do you think that's a, a good policy to have the you utilizing a gratitude journal or just even understanding just the little wins we have in our life oh totally you know and I try to do that too you know write down a few five things that I'm grat- grateful for that morning and sometimes it's just mm-hmm. like it's super simple like a hot cup of coffee or time to drink my coffee <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's those, it's those small things, it's the big things. So, you know, it's usually easier to be grateful for like the bigger things when we get a job that we really wanted or some, or something like that. But it's like those small things when we create an awareness around them, you know, so maybe one day it's, I jot down, oh, I'm grateful for my coffee, but then the next day, maybe I'll appreciate my coffee more like, oh, this is nice, you know, or taking the time to savor it and enjoy it. Definitely. It's those small things that really transform our lives. Because that's why I really like the fact that there's been this change towards mental health. Because, you know, you, instead of just having like, oh, look at me in my, my bikini and girls going, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not, I haven't got that mm-hmm. kind of body. You're going, mm-hmm. you're putting out content where people can kind of go, oh, so it's not me. It's this. It's this is how mm-hmm. I can fix my life. This is how I can fix this habit. And, you know, yeah. you're helping so many people. Was that the inspiration with the book as well that you wanted to? go deeper into this to help more people than you could take on as clients? Yeah, that was definitely uh, one of the intentions behind the book was to access, you know, a bigger audience to share ideas that I had felt had been so transformative in my own life. And so I felt like I had this story inside of me and I had these ideas inside of me that I just really, I wanted to put out into the world. Um, And then part of 
publishing the book was actually getting on social media because that's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, when you want to traditionally publish a book these days, you have to have some sort of online presence. And so that was, you know, suggested to me, oh, you should just start, you know, getting going on social media so people can get to know who you are a little bit. Um, and then, so that was, I got on two and a half, two years ago, a little bit over two years ago on Instagram. And I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy creating content for Instagram. It feels really meaningful to me. I really appreciate being connected to a bigger audience there and, and hopefully, um, you know, hope, you know, hopefully impacting some people. I mean, one of the things I did notice though, was like psychology today, fantastic site, but you know, but I work with PhD students, and the amount of research that's going on just now is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. How can we keep on top of what's going on and understand? You know, I mean, I thought it was just obsessive compulsive disorder I had. Then it was seasonal affliction disorder. Then it was mm-hmm. POCD, and you know, you can get lost in acronyms. How yeah. do you keep on top of the amount of this? And what's your take on the recent finding about um, the way depression is controlled by SSRIs and things like that? Yeah. I mean, so personally, how I stay on top of research and what's going on in the mental health world is I listen to podcasts. So I have some favorite podcasts with with researchers who come on and I always learn something new. Um, And so when I have time, like that's usually like how I'll spend my time in the car. And I also subscribe to, you know, there's these like really nice online journals that send you a little blurb of science that's coming out. So I appreciate staying connected to that. You know, when I don't have time and some, you know, I have to do CE credits um, for my licensing. So I go on longer um, trainings too, but that's just sort of like, and I think that like, no matter whatever it is that each specific person is involved with grounding yourself to things that keep you connected to that thing. So for me, it's mental health is really, it's just nice. It's a way of adding meaning to life. I love it. I mean, and how do you think things change when you, when um, you got married and had kids, Mm -hmm. you know, like there'd be a lot of new dads listening to this and going, Mm -hmm. Oh, how do I, I can barely look after myself. How am I going to look after this little bundle? How can we, how can we look after our own kids, but also realize we need to look after ourselves as much because you need to look after yourself to help other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes just hearing that as a reminder can go a really long way because we can get so caught up in parenting, especially when our kids are little, I have Mm. two kids, so I've been there through the newborn stage. Um, and sometimes you just need someone to say, Hey, take care. You need to take care of yourself. Your child will benefit from you being taken care of by yourself. So make sure that you're handing off your kid to whoever, you know, babysitter, grandparent, partner, and go spend some time, you know, going, seeing a friend or going for a walk or whatever it is that gives you purpose and meaning. You can't lose yourself in this parenting process. And it's so easy to do that. So I think just hearing that sometimes is a good reset. Like, okay, like I need to do that. It's not bad for me to do that. Actually, it's good for everyone around me, including mm. myself. And this is what I'm going to do. Because you see guys are doing that, don't they? they when they get a relationship, they mm-hmm. forget all their friends. They forget all their hobbies because they mm-hmm. become so attached into that. Mm-hmm. How do we? How do you avoid that? I mean, how something like I used to get told a lot was to go out and give yourself a challenge every day, build up that mm-hmm. mental resilience. Mm-hmm. Is these are these self um, care things a good thing to do because we can build up our mental resilience before we need it before we're having challenges in today's society? Do you think? I I do th- I think so yeah and you know I think that we really you know, speaking about relationships we humans benefit from our most uh, supportive healthy relationships when we're taking care of ourselves you know so when we're in a healthy place ourselves that's when we really benefit from our healthiest relationship. So I think reminding ourselves of that is important too. You know, sometimes we lose sight of that. It's like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to throw myself all into this and, and I'm going to lose myself in the mix and I'm going to lose my friends in the mix. And then we end up paying a price and then our relationship ends up paying a price. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it's just this reminder that you can be all in with the relationship and be all in with yourself too. Like the two aren't at odds. Because I always like that when people say, like, we finished and they said, well, why? And it's because they were no longer the person that they, they were initially attracted to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have friends who do that. It's it's almost like they have to be in a relationship to mm-hmm. be to feel worthy. How yeah. do we get, is self-acceptance the way towards self-love? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're say so it's, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it self. So here's the thing. This is like, you see this a lot on social, social media right now too. You don't need self-acceptance to accept others and, or to, or you don't need self-love to love others, but the two certainly go in hand, hand in hand. So when we work on self-acceptance, that'll lead to even more tolerance and acceptance of the people around us. When we work on our own mm-hmm. self-love and really like get at this, like, I love, I love who I am. I love my core. I'm worthy. Then we are able to offer even deeper love to the people around us. Um, and that's how that cycle works. And is there a way to be more open, especially guys? You know, it's that kind of, uh, there was articles I've read, read where they were actually like, how to make male friends over mm-hmm. 30 because so many people don't know how to do that or how to mm-hmm. be open with your friends. And I thought, that's so bad that people can't say I love you, bro, without it being oh, no homo. All these silly things like we can't just go, you make me really happy with your friendship. How can we start connecting better as men? You yeah. know, because I know a lot of girls they can hug, they can you know, yeah, yeah. It's a high five. No, we don't, we don't hug. Well, no, we, you know, how do we get past right. that? Do you think? Yeah. And I have so much empathy, you know, for the, for the male plight, you know, in terms of that, like, you know, just <laughs> this idea of, you know, embrace, you know, embracing emotion and, and learning how to express it because unfortunately, and I see this even like with people in my own life and, and for sure in my clinical work that the messages that they receive from their parents and the messages their parents read from their, their parents were, you know, got it. Like what you were saying in the very beginning, man up, you know, don't cry, boys don't cry. And I think that the way to work with that is to, you know, if this is something that you're drawn towards, you know, wanting to have more of this uh, communicative, expressive friendship with your friends, be the one to set the tone, you know? So, you know, be the one. And I think people will really admire that. And there might be some discomfort because it's not the way of being generally. But you could even say that. You can say, hey, this is something I'm working on. I want to have closer friendships. And this is, this makes me feel really good. So being the one to set the tone. And then people, people, people look up to that. People admire that. And hopefully that will catch on. So that might even be just like offering, if you're thinking something nice about one of your friends, giving them a really sincere compliment, you know, instead of like saying, oh, that's weird. I wouldn't say that, you know, or, um, telling them, I really value and cherish our friendship. You know, it might feel weird because you're not used to saying that to them, but that's okay, right? It's okay to feel discomfort and do the things that can give us more meaning and mm. and set the tone in our friendships. I like that, you know, that kind of like be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. I can't believe it's been almost an hour. I'm like so thankful for your time because I think we could talk for hours. So we've got yeah. to do a round two at some point and maybe go one on the book itself. But what would you want yeah. people to take from this? If they had, if that was like a message or like three action steps, what would you want them to do? Yeah. Yeah. I think something, you know, I hope people walk away from listening to this with is feeling empowered and feeling like change is possible and feeling like they already have the key to that in their own hands by creating pause, building more self-awareness. The thing that we just finished with, I think, is so powerful, being the change you want to see. Like, so that's part of bravery. It's, hey, I want want closer male. I want closer male friendships. I'm going to be the one to offer that to my friends and see what happens. So allow ourselves to take risks. Um, Yeah. Because that goes back to, like, that berserker thing. It's like, you know, what people go, oh, I can't say that. They'll judge me. And you say, well, Mm -hmm. 10 seconds to say it might be the thing that changes your mate's life. You know, like... um, Paddy the body, the UFC fighter, where he said he woke up to a message that one of his friends had committed suicide. And Mm -hmm. he just said, you know, even if you're struggling, if you think you can't speak to anybody, just speak to somebody. There's always, there's mental health charities, there's plenty of people that you can to. But again, it goes back to the stupid stigma of men don't cry, men are brave, men are, we're the king of the castle. Yeah, it's yeah. That's why I'm so glad there's people like you about and these fantastic books because you're helping people so you're like you're changing lives especially people who can't get to therapy or are not feeling confident enough and i think that's you should be super proud of the work i mean gatsy mm-hmm. is fantastic your social media is it's like you're talking to me each time i read it <laughs> where where should we start with the amazing content you produce how can okay. we yeah. like what what was the, the first things we should check out i know it's a difficult question because you've got so much amazing stuff but no, Are the thank things you you're most question. proud of? Well, I'm most proud of my book because that was a whole journey for me. So my book is, mm-hmm. I mentioned in the beginning, Gutsy, and it's sold um, where all major books are sold, and it's on Amazon and Audible. 
Um, so that was, that was, that was, <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a big, that was a big thing for me publishing that. And I feel proud that I did that. I always want to try to book. So it feels nice that I did it. Um, and then, uh, the other place where I am is social media. I'm there pretty frequently. I post almost daily mental health tips and content and connect with people there. My Instagram handles at Dr. Leah Katz, D-R period, L-E-A-H-K-A-T-Z. Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.